Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Physicians for a National Health Program, Kentucky. The views and opinions expressed on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley. I'm a volunteer here with the group, and I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Mike Flynn. Thanks, Mark. <clears throat> Let me begin with the usual uh, disclaimer that any comments I make here are my personal views and do not in any way represent the views of the University of Louisville or uh, the Department of Surgery. Any comments that I make are those of mine and not the views of Taylor Regional Hospital nor the University of Louisville Department of Surgery. Okay, so we have a, a guest speaker today, Henry Sadlow. Henry's a cardiologist, and we're going to talk about a number of cardiac issues today. So Henry uh, <clears throat> went to medical school at UofL, uh, did a residency in internal medicine, and uh, a fellowship in cardiology uh, at Emory <clears throat> University. And his special interest is preventive cardiology and the uh, cardiac CT uh, uh, calcium scan, which is something we we're gonna talk about. So Henry, uh, <clears throat> welcome. And we appreciate your willingness to do that this with us today. So as we have done with uh, guest speakers in the past, we're gonna give you an opportunity um, to make whatever comments you'd like to make about um, whatever aspects of cardiology you'd like to emphasize. And then the conversation will begin. So, and I'm going to ask you, though, to begin with a little bit of local history and, and tell us about this, the story of the relationship between your father and Muhammad Ali, and then we can get into all these cardiac issues. Thank you, Mike and Gene and Mark. Thanks for having me here. And uh, so my father came back from World War II and went to law school. And, and in the mid-50s, uh, didn't have any children at that time, working as a Commonwealth prosecuting attorney. So he decided to go down to Golden Gloves Boxing to volunteer because he was a boxing instructor uh, for the Army in World War II. Well, he got down there and uh, Joe Martin, uh, he, who he didn't know, said, uh, well, what do you do for a living? And my dad said, well, I'm an attorney. And they said, oh, you're a smart guy. We're going to make you the matchmaker. So starting in the mid fifties, my dad would pair up kids like Cassius Clay, Rudy Clay, Jimmy Ellis, Jerry Ellis, Troy Eskridge, another name. I think there was a Beeler in there, but, uh, uh, and he uh, kind of befriended all these uh, young kids. And of course, some of those names, everybody knows went on to become famous boxers, but, uh, uh, when I was a child, uh, 1963, uh, uh, Cassius Clay, I, I think he was still Cassius then. But anyway, he came out to my house on a Saturday. I was about seven, and he picked me up and drove me to my grandma's house in a 1963 pink Cadillac convertible, which I wish I had a picture of that. But over the years, they, <laughs> yeah, they remained friends. And, and most recently, Ken Burns came to town because he's working on the uh, – Muhammad Ali film project, eight-hour show that's coming out in the fall on PBS, but he used many of my dad's home-held videos 
And so we're going to have a little spot. It's, uh, it'll be very, a great honor for my dad who passed away in 2007 of heart disease, but uh, he will be smiling from above when he sees his home videos uh, used by the famous Ken Burns on this uh, Muhammad Ali special. Well, uh, we'll all be looking forward to it as well. So, Henry, <clears throat> tell us, uh, you know, you, you, the floor is yours to discuss whatever cardiac issues you'd like to in order to get this program started. Okay, Mike. Well, one thing I'll tell you, since you and I have been friends for probably 30 years, and I've known Gene recently, a uh, well-respected surgeon in central Kentucky and done a lot for people down there, but I can be long-winded. I inherited that from my dad. So, Mike, you raise your hand whenever I'm going too long. But anyway, right. I'll um, do this, the finger across the throat. There, there you go. That'll <laughs> work. So anyway, so uh, I spent the first uh, perhaps 25 years of my cardiac career, uh, you know, going in in the middle of the night on call, going in three in the morning, doing an emergency heart cath, putting in a pacemaker, someone with a massive heart attack. Uh, I might even do that twice in a night, just like you gentlemen had to go in for emergency surgeries. But what I decided to do in the last bit of my career was to try to, I, I, I said uh, it would be nice to try to prevent these events instead of just uh, fixing the problem when it happens. Well, why can't we try to prevent some of these people from dying and having heart muscle damage, they have a heart attack. And that's when I became more focused on preventive uh, cardiology um, and uh, so, you know, there's several different types of prevention, and I'll just mention two of the three. Primordial means uh, never let coronary disease develop. That's probably impossible genetically. But uh, secondary prevention is when someone's already had a heart attack, had a stent, had a bypass surgery. Uh, prevention is directed to keeping them from having a secondary event. What I've been trying to do at the University of Louisville here for a while is try to do primary prevention, try to diagnose coronary artery disease earlier um, and try to do something about it to help people prevent needing a stent, needing bypass surgery or dying of a heart attack. Uh, unfortunately, 25% of people approximately, their first symptom uh, of uh, coronary disease will be a heart attack and maybe 20 of those uh, die at home and never make it to the hospital. Gene, you want to start uh, with the first? Uh, well, Henry, let me. Uh, I just got back from Florida, and uh, I was um, I spent some time on a couple of beaches and was really impressed with the uh, the size of so many people we saw on <laughs> on the beaches. So, what, why don't you start off by kind of giving us a view of how do you address the issue of of obesity in this country which um, I guess is supposed to be around 30 percent but I we, we, we think it's somewhat higher and I, I looked at the people walking around on the Florida beaches and uh, uh, their hearts have got to work hard to push the blood around all that body mass. Well I agree with you Mike and unfortunately here in Kentucky I'm certain the number is higher uh, probably the people that I see in my office, probably 40 to 50% are overweight. Uh, I'm somewhat overweight myself. Uh, my wife says I'm a work in progress on trying to lose a little weight. But uh, so obesity is a big problem. What I try to do in the office when people come in, 
Um, you know, the BMI is what we look at. 20 to 25 BMI is normal. 25 to 30 is overweight. 30 to 40 is obese. And then if you're over 40, that's morbidly obese. And uh, probably, I don't know, 10% of my patients are in the morbidly obese. And so I try to focus on having them work on the American Heart Association, healthy heart diet. Um, and then I also, a lot of them aren't exercising. You know, they've retired, they're older, they might have some back problems and, and they just decide they're not going to do any exercise. So the American Heart Association has a specific recommendation of getting 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity aerobics. That would be anything equivalent to walking 18 to 20 minute mile. And so whether you do elliptical, whether you swim, whether you ride an exercise bike, doesn't matter what you do as long as you get that, that uh, time in. What I try to do, I try to do three mile uh, up to five mile walks every Saturday and Sunday. And I try to get a couple of those events in over the weekend. So if I can get at least 40 minutes of moderate intensity aerobics in four times a week, I, I meet the goal. So uh, aerobic activity is a key. Now, the problem with the obesity, um, it's very hard, even if I spend time talking about it, and I do, and my patients know that, uh, a couple of things that I do that I think are helpful. When someone leaves the office and is going to come back to see me in a year, I set a weight goal for them. And uh, whatever their weight is, if they're significantly overweight, I'll tell them to try to lose a pound and a half a month. So let's say if they come in at 250, I'll tell them to come in at 232 pounds next year. And to remind them, I'll write, them on, write that on their appointment card or one of my staff will. So they've got something they can look at once a month as a target to try to lose weight. Um, and I had a gentleman the other day that weighed 317 pounds uh, a year ago, and he came in at 300. And I patted him on the back and congratulated him. I said, that's a great step. Let's keep going. Let's don't backslide. Um, but as you, Mike, and Gene both know, a lot of people just can't do it or, or, or have a hard time doing it. And then I try to tell them to join Weight Watchers. And then uh, uh, if we have to, we send them to one of our bariatric surgeon friends. Because when you have morbid obesity, you, you get all the bad things. Hypertension, hyperlipidemia, hyperglycemia, metabolic syndrome, not good. Well, years ago, and uh, we're going back to the, probably back to the 80s, <clears throat> I wrote a couple of papers on nutrition in patients with head and neck cancer. And, and these folks, as opposed to being obese, were undernourished. And the person I wrote this with was a, was a nutritionist. Uh, she was very good. And one of the main issues that she, she had in terms of uh, the people carrying all this weight around is soft drinks. And when I would ride on the elevator um, in, whether in a, and, and, you know, in a medical office building or in the hospital, uh, you would see uh, a significant number of large people on the elevators with this huge uh, container and a straw sticking out of it. And they're constantly sipping on a sugar solution. I noticed the same thing on the beaches in Florida. These very large people, they all had this big container with a straw sticking out of it and constantly sipping on it. And, and uh, 
you know, that's a that's a really um, how, how do you is that an issue that you get into? Because that was she, she would that, you know, this was a long time ago, but I don't think anything's changed is that this this is just a constant um, stimulation to the pancreas. You get drink the sugar, the sugar gets into your blood, stimulates the pancreas. Um, fire off some insulin, and 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 you it it continues and propagates this this sense of of hunger, and 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 they keep sipping and sipping and sipping and putting on weight. Well, one of the things, uh, obviously, this would take money, but if every cardiologist, uh, endocrinologist, uh, internist had a dietitian in their office, where every patient that was overweight, once they finished seeing the physician could even have 10 minutes with a dietitian. you know, they would probably point out some of those things that you very clearly uh, realize are a key issue, too much sugar, uh, soft drinks and things like that. But uh, I think that would be helpful. And I, you know, uh, we do have, we can write for a dietary consult, but that doesn't happen very often. Um, what I do, I tell people, uh, there's uh, all kinds of books and things written out there. Uh, I tell them to go to the American Heart Association website if someone really wants to get serious and reverse heart disease, Dr. Dean Ornish has been working on it for 45 years, and he has a book called The Spectrum. So he's a, he's a total, uh, he's a vegan, and he has a zero coronary calcium score. He told me so when I met him once. Uh, but this, the spectrum means if you can't do what he does, even if you get close to it, if you do 70 or 80% of what he recommends, vegetarian diet, um, you'll do a lot better than you're doing now. So those, those are just some thoughts uh, on that. Um, Dr. Saddle, I know you've been interested in the coronary calcium imaging. When do you um, order a test? Let's say you have someone comes in who's morbidly obese. They're uh, 40 years old. They're not exercising. Uh, when do you start uh, doing some imaging to determine their coronary artery status? That's a great question. And it, the answer is different for females and males. So uh, probably the earliest I would typically order a, a coronary calcium scan on would be a 40-year-old male or a 45-year-old female with a few exceptions. If they're a heavy smoker or a childhood diabetic, then you might do it earlier. The problem with uh, the coronary calcium scan, so let me tell uh, people what that does. So without any injections of dye, you can lay on a CAT scan table and in 90 seconds, uh, just do a limited CAT scan of the chest over the heart. And if someone has plaque in their arteries that has been there for a while, developed plaque because of the inflammation builds up calcium deposits. So we can see that on a CAT scan. Now, the problem why this test doesn't work for younger people, uh, Gene, a heavy smoker that you might uh, have seen for a hernia repair that's 35 uh, down in your practice years ago, uh, uh, if they might have soft non-calcified plaque that's very angry and inflamed, and that might rupture post-op or something like that. So that you can't pick up with a, a simple non-invasive $99 coronary calcium scan. But once you get older, that plaque does calcify. So in uh, men over 40, women over 45 to 50. Um, one thing that uh, where it's most helpful, uh, I find is, let's say in 1995, when I was early into my practice, uh, 
someone would come into me and tell me uh, it was horrible. My, my brother just dropped over dead of a heart attack with no warning. And I'm 50 years old. He was 52 and I'm petrified. So back in those years, I would order a nuclear stress test. Uh, unfortunately, probably gave them more radiation than in retrospect, I would want them to have. But it was the best non-invasive test. And that was the best way for me to reassure them, or at least give them some confidence that their heart was okay. But unfortunately, uh, a blockage won't be abnormal until it's about 70% narrowed. So I probably told a lot of people that had triple vessel moderate coronary disease that they were fine and they weren't. Well, nowadays the calcium scan can get around that. It can at least tell you if you have coronary disease. And if you do, that's a great motivator to work on the risk factors to get them to lose weight, eat better, exercise, get on a statin and those type things. Uh, what if somebody has had a stent placed, let's say, uh, four years ago, uh, do, do you have any use for the calcium scan uh, for follow-up of those patients? Well, uh, the, the calcium scan, unfortunately, is a screening test. So once you've had a heart attack and a heart cath, once you've had bypass, once you have a stent, uh, then uh, that, that test is not appropriate in general. There are a few exceptions. I've had a few patients that had a single vessel lesion in the left anterior descending that had a stent 25 years ago. And their other two vessels were reported as totally normal. And occasionally I will order that, rarely, but occasionally to check out the right coronary artery and the circumflex. But uh, in general, uh, calcium scanning should not be utilized for people with stents. Uh, uh, those people would need a functional test, stress echo, stress nuclear, or perhaps what's called a CT angiogram. That's where you use a CAT scan, but you give them an injection, and that's a lot more radiation, about 15 times the radiation of a single screening calcium scan. And, and I should mention that uh, the, the radiation that you get with a calcium scan is about one millisievert, which would mean not much to anybody else but radiologists, but it's equivalent to a mammogram. So if I've got a 50-year-old female that's getting a mammogram every year, I say, you know, this is about the same amount of radiation to tell you whether you've got what your sister had, you know, sister had a heart attack. So that's where it's uh, just very helpful. Henry, I listened to a bunch of podcasts. I saw that as a retired head and neck surgeon, I could ask intelligent questions. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the podcasts I listened to was a while ago. I can't remember all the details, but I, I came away with the impression that cardiac disease is different in men than women. And I don't remember all the, the specifics, but maybe you could, you could enlighten me on that because I, I, I was a little confused about exactly what they meant. It was, a, it, was a, it was a podcast that was probably focused for cardiologists, not for head and neck surgeons. Well, uh, th there are differences, definitely. And probably the biggest difference is women are more likely to have atypical uh, symptoms than men are. It would be lovely if everybody that developed coronary disease would have the classic heaviness and pressure right in the center of the chest. 
But uh, in women, they're more likely to have atypical symptoms such as uh, nausea, uncomfortable feeling, not necessarily pain. They might have shortness of breath and no chest pain. Uh, sometimes they have pain in the left shoulder or, or jaw, just uh, uh, more, much more common in females to have atypical pain. So when someone's complaining of pain to me in the office, a female <coughs> that might be 50 years old, um, if it's atypical for me to order an expensive stress test, uh, you know, sometimes we do that, but if I can get them to pay out of pocket $99 for a screening coronary calcium scan, if they get a score of zero, then I might tell them to look at other etiologies through their primary care internist, maybe esophageal etiologies, uh, pulmonary etiologies. On the other hand, if they come in with a score of a thousand, then they're in the right place and I need to get to work and see if they need a heart cath or a stress test and, and, and also get, get on the risk factor modification. So, uh, and then also women have, uh, in general, may have smaller coronary arteries. So the stents and things that we put in, in some women with diffuse small vessel disease, uh, they don't do as well with bypass surgery or stenting, but aggressive medical therapy will help them. One of the other uh, podcasts that I listened to and I was kind of surprised was uh, one that uh, addressed the issue of cardiac disease in high intensity uh, athletes and uh, marathon runners, uh, you know, people who, who, you know, just were, you know, really, really aggressive cyclists and uh, you know, other athletes like that. And, and, and was really surprised that, apparently uh if you once uh, these people are stressing their hearts and once they get into their 50s 60s and 70s they, they, apparently they have a fair amount of heart disease uh, which surprised me because i would have thought these were the people that would be the the uh you know the healthiest so i mean the question really has to do about you know exercise you 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 mentioned moderate exercise i you know i've got a Airdyne bicycle in my in one of our rooms and I sit on that thing and pump for you know 20 30 minutes at a time and uh, what I used to do is I did do this and then in the last five minutes I'd really be pushing it now uh, is that not you know if, if you had somebody with an arrhythmia or some sort of mild degree of cardiac disease where do you what's kind of where do you draw the line is it not a, a sensible thing to do to try to either, you know, run, run and walk and run, walk and run, or, or, or just, you know, start doing varying speeds on a stationary bicycle or, or on a bicycle or even swimming, swim slow laps and fast laps. So sort of where, where is the sweet spot in, in, in exercise for people as they get older? Well, that's a great question, and I'll, I'll uh, preface that by saying I'm not a sports medicine cardiologist, so I don't know all the answers, but I will tell you I've seen some reports and some papers where people that overexercise uh, all their lives keep running marathons into their 50s or 60s, you can develop some myocardial fibrosis, which I was quite surprised by that, and, uh, and it's interesting. You would think that people that got all the aerobic activity. Usually their blood pressures are better. Their 
glucose tolerance is better. I mean, I think that's pretty much proven. Uh, vigorous exercise helps with lipid management too. But I was kind of surprised to see that it didn't necessarily reduce the amount of coronary plaque that people had. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think, uh, I think as you, as you age, uh, uh, maybe more to protect the musculoskeletal system, but uh, I don't know that it's a, a good idea to keep pounding it uh, in your fifties uh, and sixties. Uh, I will say that a good friend of mine, who's a professor at university of Louisville, um, I ran my first mini marathon with him in 1978 and I ran about 15 total. Uh, but I, as I got busy, I quit doing that older in life. And after he ran his 30th, he came to me and I helped him do preoperative clearance for a hip surgery. So, uh, that, I don't know if that answers totally your question, but, uh, I, I think there's some concern out there that, uh, high intensity exercise for longer periods of time may have some negative, which I was surprised as you were of that, you know, I don't think the final answer is out there yet, but there are concerns that over-exercising may not be so good for the heart. What about moderate uh, exercise? Moderate is, is fine. In fact, that's, that's the general recommendation. So, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I think uh, a light jog, you know, if you like doing it, um, uh, Mike and I, and Gene, you probably know this fellow too, but uh, uh, Dr. David Nightingale, my good friend who uh, <laughs> inspired me to kind of start my little walking group, uh, he told me he ran his last mini marathon at 70, and he won a triple crown in his early 70s, and and he's uh, going to be 90 next month. Uh, David, I hope if you're listening, you won't be uh, mind me telling your age, but he's uh, he's in spectacular health, so... Uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he did that, and he's a good example of someone who looks great and thinks great, uh, feels great at 90. So uh, uh, maybe some of those articles that Mike and I saw were wrong. And you know what he took up after he retired? <laughs> uh, I'll let you tell that you story, know, Mike. Yeah, he just started jumping out of airplanes. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going he's on <laughs> On record saying that I do not recommend that. But, yeah, okay. Uh, anyway. <laughs> well, I was a flight surgeon in a C-130 outfit. When we had paratroopers in the plane, I always stayed up in the cockpit. <laughs> yes. And, and, and Dr. Hiram Polk, Gene, told me that you were a very smart surgeon. That's why you stayed in the cockpit. And, <laughs> and saved your spine from spine trauma. Yeah. Well, I think the sweet spot or the the issue about say, well, moderate exercise. I, I you know, I think moderate exercise is different things for different people, and and then trying to determine, uh, you know, I, we've got a we've got a tandem and we ride in Cherokee Park, and what we've generally done is ride that loop three times. Uh, we live off Cherokee Park, so that's three hills, and one more hill to go back up. Uh, the Cochrane Hill to get back to our house. And so, and that, that's, you know, the moderate exercise is the flat part, but when you're going up the hill, I, I don't, that's not moderate exercise. That's really pushing it. So I, I guess I'm wondering as, you know, as the, the numbers start adding up <laughs> my age, whether I ought to be modifying what, what I'm doing with it, with that, 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 uh, that tandem in the, in, in the park there, uh, 
Well, I, I, I don't know if a little bit here and there of high intensity um, is a problem. Uh, you know, now it, it would be different if you have known significant heart disease, you know, uh, on those people that I diagnose significant heart disease, I usually put them in a cardiac rehab program where they have a cardiac monitor on. So if they, if they do want to push it, like you're pushing it up a hill, uh, they can at least see what it looks like on a cardiac monitor in front of a nurse that can defibrillate them if they push it too much, you know, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Well, so, not, a lot, uh, not a lot of those out on Cherokee Park. <laughs> no, there's not. When you get up uh, to Hogan's Fountain. <laughs> that's right. But the one thing I would, uh, you know, I would say is that, uh, you know, the, 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 the exercise, I think it has to be kind of continuous. So some of my, their dog out, well, the dog stops every, you know, 100 feet. You know, that's better than sitting on your couch, but it's not as good as going out and just walking, you know, at a moderately brisk pace for, for 60 minutes, you know, or 30 minutes, take a, take a sip of water. And, you know, so that's what I try to do. I try to get 40 to 60 minutes uh, of, of, you know, moderately brisk paced walking, not race walking, not 15 minute miles, but 18 to 20 minute miles. And, you know, and then if you, the problem is a lot of people have back problems, knee problems, hip problems. And one of the things that I've learned about is there's a program on KET, I think it's KET2 here in Louisville. And, and at 7.30 every morning, this uh, lady gets on there and does a program called Sit to be Fit, where she sits in a chair and she does 30 minutes of aerobic exercise with the upper body. And I at least try to tell my patients to do that if they can't get out and, and move with their hips and back problems. Well, uh we occasionally see young people um, in their 20s who have myocardial infarctions. And I always, uh, when that happens, think they're probably on cocaine. Am I correct? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yes and no. Um, I remember some of the uh, early autopsy reports. Uh, I think uh, William Roberts, uh, Bill Roberts, who's the, was the editor of the American, uh, I think it's the American Heart Journal, but but famous pathologists down in Texas, you know, they found uh, soft streaky plaques in 27 year olds that, you know, they did autopsies on in Vietnam that came back and they were shocked that 27 year olds would already have plaque. But, uh, uh, and those are usually the heavy smokers or familial hypercholesterolemia or horrible genetics, but obviously cocaine is uh, very dangerous to the heart. It can cause, coronary basal spasm. So uh, I think if you got somebody in their 20s, you got to figure out if they're not doing cocaine, they've got one of those other uh, severe premature problems that need to be diagnosed. Because, you know, nowadays we've got a whole armamentarium of medications that we can put them on uh, where we didn't have that uh, 30 years ago. Uh, Henry, where does childhood obesity fit into this? Because, um, you know, we I, when I grew up, there just weren't very many heavy kids. And, uh, and again, to go back, back to the Florida beaches of last week, there's just, there's a lot of them around. And now, you know, I, we know they have more, they have hypertension, they get diabetes. I mean, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm talking about young kids, too, you know, these are adolescents. So well, I'm assuming that this, the heart issue is is just the same 
uh, earlier uh, uh, incidents and as along with the the hypertension and the diabetes. Well, I think because of that, Mike, I agree with you, and I think unfortunately we're going to be seeing more coronary disease, more issues because of the obesity. I think if you don't get to these kids, you know, in the early grades, grades one through eight, if you don't get to them by the time they get high school, you know, the battle may be lost. So uh, hopefully someone will put some funding into really make it a push. You know, the schools may need more dietitians to uh, help instruct these kids and, and somebody needs to be watching over uh, what's going into the, uh, uh, the machines where you can put a dollar in and get something out that may not be healthy for you. So, uh, but, I, but I agree, childhood obesity is a big problem. What I think would be interesting is to take football programs from some of the local high schools in the 70s and the 80s and, and look at the body weights uh, of every player and then match that with the current high school football programs in the state uh, and see what the difference is. I, I bet the weights would be significantly higher, as you've observed. Now, one of the other issues that I, I learned about in my um, <laughs> my podcast listening was it was a similar uh, to that uh, the, the the impression that that <coughs> cardiac disease is different in men and women. It was also another one that seemed to suggest that cardiac disease is different in different ethnic groups as well. So uh, again, is that a is that a if that's a real issue? Maybe you could make some comments on that. I mean, is it are the, is the black population different than than the Hispanics and and the whites? Uh, yeah. or, yes. or Asians. Yep. So that's an excellent question. And and what looked at that was actually a large scale coronary calcium. Uh, a program called the MESA study, M-E-S-A, Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis. And uh, Roger Blumenthal up at Johns Hopkins, who's a pioneer of preventive cardiology, uh, he uh, was one of the main people, was with the big group that started this. But, uh, and then other groups have looked into it. So the, the highest incidence of coronary disease is actually in the South Asian population. Uh, people in the area around India have the highest incidence of coronary artery disease on, on screening scans. Uh, next is Caucasian, uh, then African-American, and then the least is South, um, uh, East Asians, um, Japan, areas around there. They have the least amount of coronary disease. And, uh, you know, as far as uh, that's, you know, just a genetic thing that they've discovered. Uh, I think the uh, African-American population, uh, they still definitely have coronary disease, uh, but they might be at more risk for complications of hypertension, such as cardiomyopathy and hypertensive heart disease. Uh, perhaps that's a bigger problem in, in that ethnic population. Was what... Uh... What should we do about all these uh, obese people, particularly uh, children and uh, teenagers? It just seems to be totally out of control. I've observed the same thing. When I uh, moved back to Campbellsville, I've spent a significant amount of my time in the summer on Green River Reservoir. 
And in the early uh, 80s, there were no obese people getting on boats. And now you got to ask yourself, uh, is this boat going to swamp or not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, I think that um, as uh, physicians, we need to make sure, you know, everybody's rushed. Everybody needs to see X number of more patients. And uh, I think it's not responsible if a doctor spends 10 minutes with a patient on a follow-up visit and doesn't spend any time talking about uh, the elephant in the room to, uh, you know, really bring that out. Um, Because it is important. And a lot of times, I would say at least 10 to 20% of my patients, they'll come back in the next year and they will uh, say that, um, you know, I'm glad you talked to me. Um, one gentleman came in and I told him to lose 18 pounds and he'd lost 30. And so I told him what I would do. I would take his card and uh, scratch his name off it and put it on my wall of fame and leave it up there for a couple of weeks to show where he went from 280 pounds to 250. So you just have to spend time with patients. Uh, you have to talk to them about it in a non, you know, non angry, non threatening kind of way. And you need to convince them that you're not doing this for your benefit. You're trying to help them. And uh, so, you know, it'd be nice if we had some safer medicines for weight loss, but there is no pill. And that when I give people from the American Heart Association, I give them a two page handout and it says, you know, you need to burn off more calories than you put in, you know, and, uh, and uh, the American Heart Association has an eight, I think it's an eight page website. So there's more information for people who really get the message uh, on their website. Let's talk a little bit about access to care. Um, Gene and I have actually written an article for Louisville Medicine on rural health and and issues related to that. And we've actually done a program on that. Um, you know, in rural communities all over the country, for an assortment <coughs> of reasons, there, there aren't a lot of specialists. And so uh, the the responsibility for dealing with a lot of cardiac issues as as well as some endocrine issues, managing diabetes, uh, you know, falls in the laps of of primary care physicians. And I don't I don't mean to criticize them, but you got some thoughts about ways that that, uh, you know, we can improve access to the specialist care in rural, you know, rural uh, parts of this country, uh, you know, Australia, for example, has got, has got, has got actually, a, has got a section in its its government on, on rural medicine, on providing uh, surgeons and, and specialists to parts of Australia that are, you know, really way out back in rural. We we don't seem to be doing that in this country. Uh, you got any thoughts about? you know, where that's going to end up, it seems to me 10 years from now, it's going to be worse than it is now. Gene, you, you, you live out there. So I wonder what your thoughts are before well, we let Henry take a crack at it. We've done a pretty good job in uh, our relationship with uh, specializations, particularly in Louisville, for example, in cardiology. We have two cardiologists that are in Camelsville three days a week. And uh, if we have an incident in the middle of the night or uh, on a weekend, 
the, the uh, cardiologists are uh, available. And if they've had a MI, we ship them up usually to Jewish hospital and they get taken care of. Uh, if, it, if it's just somebody we want to watch, they will consult the next day. And it's worked out extremely well for us. We've done the same thing in cancer. We have our own cancer program and we have affiliation with the Brown Cancer Center and the Cancer Center at the University of Kentucky. And we, uh, we refer patients back and forth. <clears throat> Not only do we send patients to them, but they send patients to us. And we've done a similar thing with uh, our, our trauma care. So I think that type of uh, situation and relationship between the physicians in the urban area and the rural area is very important. I've made great effort through the uh, last uh, 40 plus years to maintain a relationship with the Department of Surgery. And it's been of great benefit. Uh, I can call somebody up and they'll give me advice or uh, I, if I need a patient, patient sent up for specialized care, that's worked really quite well. Well, Gene, uh, a, a couple of points on that. First of all, um, I don't know if you're allowed to say names, but I know the two gentlemen that go down to Campbellsville, Taylor County, and they're both great, great human beings in addition to being great cardiologists. So, uh, and they've dedicated themselves to your city down there for 25, maybe 30 years. So my hat's off to those two. And uh, as uh, you probably know, Gene, I, I ran a clinic in Greensburg, Kentucky, one day a week for about a decade, and then a clinic down in Hardinsburg, Kentucky, uh, for about uh, 20 years, one day a week. And uh, I, I enjoyed that. I like traveling and the people were very appreciative. But Mike, to your point, I think there is going to be, uh, you know, we need more. And uh, I think one of my thoughts would be when people do internal medicine, they do three years of various things. I think we might need to get to a point where we say, okay, you do two years of internal medicine and there, we're going to have you do your third year specializing in cardiology you know, not procedures, not stents or heart catheterization, but to learn how to do stress tests, read echoes and do office cardiology. And the same with gastroenterology, you know, the, the basic simple procedures. Uh, uh, so, you know, if you took a three-year internal medicine program, uh, you might even be able to do it with family medicine. And then the last six months or the last 12 months, you, you kind of did all specialty training. I think that would be one way to perhaps fill that need, because I think there's going to be a big shortage of cardiologists in the future, personally. Mark, yeah, I, I, just a, a question and or a comment about, are we evolving even more into a fast food nation and as opposed to where we were back in the 70s? It's uh, the pace of life to... to uh, you know, mom and dads are working, the, the time factor, uh, you talk about access to healthcare, access to healthy, fresh food, vegetables. Um, I know there was a story on NPR this week that talked, uh, they were talking to uh, army recruiters and the problems that, and, and many of those, uh, Gene, were in rural areas that 
they had to work with potential recruits to get because of the overweight and obesity that they couldn't they couldn't qualify to get into the service so they were almost like these recruiters were almost like personal trainers to some of their recruits to get them to a point where they would qualify but just uh, a comment I, and i thought i'd read um some time ago that some of the early community health centers uh, maybe in um, uh, Mississippi where the doctors there were prescribing food. I mean, they were able to, to uh, uh, prescribe healthy foods to their, their patients coming in because back then of, of malnutrition uh, issues. So comments? Well, I'd hate to be a recruiter recruiting some of the folks that I saw walking around the beach in Florida. <laughs> in Florida. Uh, Henry, all right, so let's 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 get into some specifics here. If you had to to tell me, say five um, food substances that I should avoid because they're not good for my heart. I mean, I'm assuming something like processed meats. What what would what would the top five be that you would suggest that you either eliminate from your diet or just uh, have minimal amounts? So I would tell you to walk into any of your local convenience stores, gas stores. I'm not going to mention any names, <laughs> and everything you see in there, you should avoid. <laughs> it's, just, it's all processed. It's all fructose. It's all high sugars, yeah. heavy salt, and uh, you know, I, I mean. Uh, I'm friends with Dr. Brad Stanford, who has uh, spent a life with health and nutrition, and uh, uh, and he's written books on it. Uh, and uh, you know, you just uh, you want to stick with the leafy green stuffs. You want to stick with vegetables, uh, meats, uh, lean meats. You know, you and you know, I I tell my patients that aren't vegetarians that you know, if you treat yourself once a month to something that you know probably isn't good for your heart. Uh, uh, you know, once a month is, is okay, but if you do it four or five times a week, you're going to pay for it, you know, so, uh, you know, all the processed stuff, you know, when I look at all the uh, cupcakes and all that stuff, uh, uh, you know, potato chips and, you know, everything you see in there when you go into a convenience store, uh, you know, if you have that every now and then, you know, and I have some of that every now and then, it's pretty rare, but, uh, you know, uh, vegetables, lean protein, uh, you know, uh, that's the way to go. Well, let's talk a little bit about fructose. Um, how, how did fructose become a uh, problem uh, uh, during our lifetime? And Mike, I'll let you take that one because I'm not a dietary expert. I just know it's bad for you. Okay. Th didn't uh, one in the late 70s, so we got all concerned about um, lipids, and then we started uh, uh, eating less fats and the, a lot of uh, the commercial <coughs> food industry started putting fructose into uh, food products to make it uh, more uh, delicious, particularly uh, uh, soft drinks, et cetera. I, th I think that's a huge problem. And I think some of the, uh, the people that make food products have, have realized that. And I think they're trying to drift away on that. 
And Gene, you brought up the word lipids. And I thought I'd at least mention to people that, uh, you know, you want to know, uh, you know, over, I don't know, probably over 30 should know what their LDL cholesterol is because of all the different lipid numbers that are measured, the LDL is critical to slowing down plaque buildup. And the, uh, the new guideline is it should be less than 100. And if you have coronary disease, your LDL cholesterol, I tell my patients, it's like the speed limit on the interstate. You want it less than 70. Uh, for the European uh, Association Cardiology has already recommended LDLs less than 50 for diabetic patients with coronary disease. So, so that's what we need to do. Get rid of that high fructose stuff, uh, all the processed foods, processed meats, and, and, and try to get that LDL cholesterol down. And people that have genetic coronary disease connections like I do, you know, you typically have to get on a statin to do that. Red yeast, rice won't quite do it for you. Um, are there different um, uh, cardiac disease incidences in different parts of this country? You know, California versus Washington <clears throat> State versus Iowa versus Maine or Mississippi? Uh, absolutely. And uh, <laughs> in the southern, southern states is the biggest uh, heart belt of uh, heart attacks and strokes. And uh, you know, so the American Heart Association in those areas are trying to be very active, but uh, uh, probably the lower incidences may be places like Colorado, Minnesota, some of the West Coast places. So that is correct. There is a big, needs to be a bigger focus in certain areas. How much of an issue has the pandemic been in terms of the frequency of cardiac disease? I mean, people seem to be, uh, you know, they're, they're staying home working from home, um, I got the impression, I don't know this, but they, they tend to, uh, you know, eating different things. People seem to be gaining weight. Again, I'm, th this isn't something I have any direct knowledge about. These are little bits and pieces you pick up from reading a newspaper or listening to the news. And, and so I, I guess the question is, you know, so much of everything, you know, home life, uh, Stress, mental illness have all been affected by this pandemic. Where does cardiology or cardiac disease fit into that 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 equation? Well, the the incidence is going up from the last year. It was uh, not good for cardiology for two reasons. I would say that I'm being a frontline uh, cardiology provider. That probably two thirds of my patients gained anywhere from five to fifteen pounds last year. Uh, just because they, well, they weren't doing as much exercise. You know, they, they might have had a gym membership at the YMCA where they gave it up for a year and uh, they didn't watch their diet, you know, sitting around at home more, uh, you know, working from home. You might be closer to a refrigerator. So I think it's an issue and we probably won't see the effects from this last COVID year until five or 10 years. You might see a spike in five or 10 years. Well, one of the, uh, I guess, I don't know if this is a fair question for you, but, uh, you know, we're, we are sponsored by the Kentuckians for single payer. And that, that's an issue about promoting um, a form of, of health insurance that's provided by the government. <clears throat> you know, Canada has a single payer system so that 
Uh, anyone who's got a, a medical problem can go see whoever, whatever they see. And that individual physician then sends a bill to the province and the province pays the bill. They don't have to deal with a thousand and different insurance companies and uh, Medicare and Medicaid or underinsured, no insured, just it's different. Uh, do you have a, you had some thoughts about just, just suppose we had a single payer system in this country. How would that affect your ability to manage cardiac disease, maybe as an individual in your practice? And then in a broader sense, how would that affect the management of a cardiac disease in the population at large, where you've got in this country, I, I don't know, it's 80 million people who are either uninsured or underinsured. And again, I don't well, know if this is a real fair question. We're getting, well, go ahead, Henry. I, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. I'll preface this by saying uh, I, I haven't studied uh, the politics of medicine or insurance uh, well enough to be, to say I'm that informed, but, but it is a big problem. And I'll give you an example in my office there's a brand new medication for heart failure called Entresto. And if you've got really good insurance, uh, a patient of mine was uh, from uh, Fort Knox, retired military. He has track care for life. Uh, he should be able to get this, but uh, a lot of my patients can't get it. And, uh, you know, that's a big obstacle. And, and uh, you know, the, the blood thinners, the anticoagulants, uh, you know, if, if you don't have good insurance, if you haven't paid for good insurance, you're stuck with warfarin. And, uh, you know, uh, these other medicines cost three, $400 a month. So, I mean, the, the, you, you bring out the point that that's a huge problem. Uh, even with private insurances, I heard a radio show today where uh, one of the local morning DJs was complaining because he has private insurance, but He's complaining if he wants to go see someone, he's got to make a phone call and see if that provider is on his list. So uh, even though he's paying big money for private insurance, even he doesn't have the freedom to see who he'd like. So uh, uh, the problem is there, Mike. The solution uh, is complex uh, for people more sophisticated. I'm going to keep taking care of people with heart attacks and let someone who's sophisticated like you and Gene figure that out. <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think the solution is complex at all. I think the solution is very simple. It is, you know, to have a single payer system in this country. What's complex is the process of the likelihood or the probability of getting there anytime soon. You know, we've talked about this uh, on multiple occasions. Gene and I were talking to it about it before we started this show today. Well, uh, we spend about three point six. Uh, trillion dollars on healthcare in this country. <clears throat> the interesting part is about a third of that is totally wasted that no one else uh, spends. For example, uh, advertising. <coughs> We're the only country in the world that advertises uh, uh, doctors, hospitals, drug, etc. And all those expensive medicines you were just talking about are advertised on uh, TV. And uh, but yet most people uh, can't afford them. The, uh, the uh, for-profit uh, insurance companies are making a huge amount of money 
and they're getting more and more involved into uh, care and more and more involved into government insurance. For example, uh, they're administering more uh, Medicaid for in the state of Kentucky, they're administering most of the uh, Medicaid plans. The same thing is happening uh, in Medicare. So uh, we've got a problem. If we could just eliminate a third of that amount of money that's wasted, uh, we might be able to make some progress. Henry, we're just about out of time. Um, I would like to thank you for coming on. This was an interesting, informative program. Do you want to make any last-minute comments uh, before we pull the plug on? Yes, yes. Get get your exercise. Try to uh, make an effort to eat healthier, uh, healthier on your diet. Uh, and if you have cardiac symptoms, chest pain, unusual things in your chest, see your primary care and make sure you get attention to it. And then for those with family history of coronary disease or a lot of the risk factors, hyperlipidemia, hyperglycemia, hypertension, smoking, or, or family history is the big biggie there. If you have any of those five risk factors, uh, if you're old enough, think about a coronary calcium scan, but uh, stay healthy and, and say your prayers and then and uh, just keep moving. All right. Thanks again, right. Henry. And you do the same. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. For more information, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. That's the website for Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. You can also follow the group on Facebook. And I think um, Kay or Harriet also have got us. Uh, with some other social media. So thanks again, everyone.